Welcome to the best of Trending in Ed. This is Mike Palmer speaking. As you may already know, this summer, we're showcasing many of our favorite episodes of Trending in Education over the years as we gear up to celebrate episode 500 very soon. We just released episode 488. So you do the math. We're getting close. In the meantime, we wanted to share some of our favorites. This one definitely sticks in my mind. This is a conversation that I had with Annie Duke, the author of Thinking in Bets, How We Decide. She has a new book out now on quitting. This episode came out with the book Thinking in Bets. We interviewed Annie in the summer of 2019, just about three years ago. This is episode 202 that we're highlighting. We're now almost to episode 500. Three years have passed. Feels like much, much more time in many ways. Hopefully this will bring some of us back to a simpler time. It's an amazing conversation. I hope to get Annie and other folks thinking about decision science, decision education onto the show. It's an important trend. It's one we want to continue to track. But in the meantime, sit back, relax. Take yourself back to a simpler time. Let's listen to The Best of Trending in Ed with Annie Duke, the author of Thinking in Bets. Annie, as I mentioned in the prep, a big fan. So it's fun to to interview someone who I spend a lot of time listening to. So I listen to you voice the audio version of Thinking in Bets. So again, welcome to the show. For our listeners who may not know your backstory, can you provide a quick summary in your own words of what got you to the point of writing this book and then starting the Alliance for Decision Education? Yeah, sure. So first of all, I just want to say, by the way, when I was voicing that book, I had just gotten over a horrible case of laryngitis. So I, it's amazing to me that that book sounds like I'm normal in it because I was having to stop and walk out of the recording booth to cough a lot. And so I just remember it as this experience of me coughing the whole time, but apparently I don't actually cough on the recording. Yeah. So I have a kind of winding strange path in terms of how I got to today. I started off my adult life as an academic. As an undergrad, I was a research assistant to a wonderful professor named Barbara Landau, who was professor in the burgeoning field, really kind of a new field of cognitive science, cognitive psychology, which was really thinking about how are we interacting with the world, building models of the world, learning. It was a melding of a lot of different dif disciplines, linguistics, computation, so on and so forth, and really interesting time to be in psychology. So I, I was her research assistant. She really strongly pushed me to go study with her mentors, with her advisors at the University of Pennsylvania, which I did do. And I went to graduate school there for five years, studying with Lila and Henry Gleitman. And fully intended, like to total complete intention to become a professor. And in fact, at the end, I had all of my job talks lined up to go interview to become a professor. And I ended, I got sick. So, you know, luck intervened in this way that at the time felt like very bad luck. And I ended up in the hospital for a couple of weeks. I needed to, needed some time to recuperate. It was a pretty bad stomach ailment. So uh, eating wasn't a pleasant experience for me at that point. And so I, I decided to take a year off because 
I, I just needed to get better. So I delayed all my job talks and I was going to go back out the next spring. And it was in that period where I need, just needed money. Frankly, I wasn't in school, which meant I couldn't teach, uh, which was where a lot of my income was coming from. And also I didn't have my fellowship anymore. So I did, I had a, I was studying under a national science foundation fellowship when I was at Penn. And obviously I didn't have that anymore. And so I needed money, but I was also, I didn't feel well every single day. You know, it wasn't like I was going to go start like a career. And I certainly wasn't going to go do something that was nine to five because I was going to be calling in sick a lot. So my brother actually suggested that I play poker. And your, your brother is Howard Letterer, for those of us who got into World Series of Poker back in the 90s. Uh, and he, yeah. he was legendary as a poker professional while you were pursuing your academic career, right? Yeah. So he, he actually started playing poker before I was done with high school. He started playing in the early 80s. So... At the time that all of this is happening to me, it's like 1994. She's already been playing for a very long time. So I'm like familiar with the game, but also for context for people, now poker is very ubiquitous. It's like on television, you can watch it all the time. There's internet poker, like you can play online. None of that existed back then. So it wasn't like nowadays, I think that th there are kids who are actually like, oh, I could be a poker player when I grow up. For me, like my understanding of poker was from the odd couple, because sure. they would sometimes have a Wednesday night poker game on the odd couple. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And then also my dad had those plastic chips and we would sometimes play past the trash or baseball or something. Yeah. Like there, there was no like, oh, yes, this is something that you could do as a living. But because my brother had ended up doing this really through an entree from chess, who was a really avid and accomplished chess player and started playing poker, he had already been doing it forever. So he said to me, hey, it seems like maybe that's something that you could do. You know, it's not like you have to call in sick to work. You like show up when you show up. So that was when I started playing poker, had a lot of success really early on with it and really loved it and actually ended up not going out to become a professor and just started pursuing poker. So about eight years, yeah, eight years into my poker career, having done all my PhD work right. at Penn, about eight years in, in 2000, I think it was 2002, I got asked by a guy named Roger Lowe, who had a hedge fund, if I would come and speak to his options traders about how poker might inform decisions about risk. This was a really pivotal moment in my life because obviously, the things that I've been studying as a cognitive scientist were certainly informing the way that I was thinking about poker, for sure. I wasn't necessarily thinking about that in a super explicit way. And I wasn't thinking also in an explicit way about how poker might inform what I had been thinking about as a cognitive psychologist. And what I had been specifically really thinking about was learning and studying how human beings learn. So... When he asked me, when Roger Lowe asked me to come and give this talk, it's this moment where I really start to think explicitly about the way that the kind of real-time, high-stakes decision-making problem that poker presents speaks to and interacts with the kinds of things that I was studying as a cognitive psychologist. I get up to give a talk to that group of options traders. It's like this aha moment of remembering what I loved so much about academics. I think that I started playing poker and I just loved the problem so much. It was, it's such an interesting and hard problem to try to unpack that I just 
fell so deep into it that in some ways I forgot what it was that I loved so much about academics. And when I got up and gave that talk, I remembered what I loved so much about graduate school. Hmm. And I think that it was that moment of realizing, oh, these two things actually inform each other in this really, really interesting way. Yeah. So from that one talk with Roger, he recommended me to a few people. I ended up getting other work, you know, really talking about the interplay between these two worlds. And by 2006, a friend of mine asked me if I wanted to join the board of a nonprofit that was called the Decision Education Foundation. And this was run by a group of people really kind of out of Stanford and Ron Howard, who was really the father of decision analysis. And Not happy days, Ron Howard. Not happy days, Ron okay. Howard. This is yeah. a professor at Stanford who was really the father of decision analysis. Yep. And they were a group of people who had said, we had this consulting business and we know all this academic work on how do you think about decisions, particularly how do you think about decisions under conditions of uncertainty, this kind of probabilistic world. Yep. And we really think that this is something that should be taught to every kid, like every kid in school. This friend of mine was, was familiar with some of the work that I had been doing, marrying the poker problem and this ac the academic stuff that, that I had been tackling as a graduate yep. student. And thought that I might be a really good fit for that board. Mm -hmm. um, we had a few conversations and I explored the nonprofit and what they were doing and really fell in love with that mission. Ended up joining that board in 2012, retired from poker. And I also resigned from that board. We're still really involved with that organization. But the reason why I resigned from that board is because me and actually the person who had originally invited me to join, we're both really focused and hungry for scale. Really felt like it wasn't enough to get decision education to thousands of kids, that, that we really wanted to get it to millions of kids. And so we ended up leaving that organization and co-founding the Alliance for Decision Education. Yep. So we founded it in 2014. And the idea was, we're going to see if we can really create programs that do actually move the needle. And we thought if we do that and we can really show really good evaluation that we could scale. Mm -hmm. That was the idea. Yep, yep. So we did that. We created some programs. They really did move the needle, increased test scores. And we weren't directly teaching math or English or anything, but we were teaching this, the, these decision skills. Yep. But they increased test scores about 10 to 15% in subjects that weren't what we were teaching. And they reduced disciplinary actions by 5%. So we thought, this is great. We're going to go out and obviously now everybody will want to do this and we'll reach millions of kids. And it turns out it just doesn't work that way in education. It's very hard to get new curricula into schools. Yeah. It's hard to get people to commit to the PD. And it's a lot of questions about what are we going to, if we teach this and we have to, what are we going to take away? We talk about that a lot. K-12 especially is the hardest space to really innovate quickly. You know, you right, exactly. Anywhere else, even higher ed, it's easier to get there. And then if you get at more like informal lifelong learning, that type of intervention and pre-K, those are the areas. There's the most ability to be experimental there. So that, that's interesting. It does sound like that's maybe validated a bit by some of your experiences. Yeah, for sure. And by the way, I have an answer to what should you take away. It's like 
trigonometry. Yeah. Trigonometry is, by the way, the history of trigonometry is like it was really hard. So it was a way to test for grit. Basically. Right. And it, and it turns out that there's no Native American woman named Sokotoa, which totally blew my mind. What? Really? <laughs> How strange. Really? Okay. There you go. Yeah. So like, just get trigonometry. Like, look, the fact is that kids are at some point getting statistics and probability, but it's generally an elective. Yep. At some point, are you getting a class in decision-making in college as an elective? If you want to be a structural engineer, take trigonometry. And I would, I personally would replace that with statistics and probability, but you know, that's my own thing. It's hard to turn that ship around. Let's just put it that way. Yeah. 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 So in the meantime, we co-found the organization at the time it's called how I decide we create these programs. These programs seem to do really well. Then we run up against a brick wall. You know, we've reached 60,000 kids. I, Look, I mean, proud of no. that, but it's right, but it's not 60 million, which is what we care about. That's why that's, we still support the Decision Education Foundation. Actually, by the way, we partner with them because yep. they're doing great work, but they were much more in the 60,000 range. And we, sure. we were like, we want to be in the 60 million range. So we love what you do. We just want to scale it, right? Mm -hmm. so the idea. So while that's going on, I write this book, Thinking and Bets, which is really what had become this life's work of how is poker informing decision-making in general and how is it really getting you to think about the amazing academic work that's being done in judgment and decision-making and cognitive yeah. science. Even when you were talking about von Neumann and the history of game theory, it is interesting to hear you talk about how you connected poker to your academic career. You know, von Neumann is almost like the intersection of your Venn diagrams there. We're talking about academics who gravitated to poker. A poker table is a beautiful behavioral economics lab. And, you know, it seems like that mindset is part of what allowed you to succeed as a poker player and then to full circle, start connecting back the academics to the poker. It's a wonderful read. I would recommend it to our listeners. It's interesting to think about it from the learning perspective. At your core, that's something you're still very passionate about. I'd love to hear, what do you see coming down, down the pike? What are you experimenting with to understand how we can scale the decision science and thinking in bets? Yes. So let me just tie up a few things. So John, Neu John von Neumann, just for people who aren't familiar with him, a very important person in the history of science, but somewhat lost in terms of level of fame. Like he's no Einstein as far as like branding is concerned. Like we all know who Einstein is. So von Neumann is actually the father of the modern computer. He ran the Manhattan Project and actually died of cancer at age 52, likely because of the atomic testing. But while he was running the Manhattan Project, he wrote a book with Oscar Morgenstern called The Theory of Games. And this is really creating the framework for our game theory, which is the study of decision making under conditions of uncertainty over time. That's a loose definition of it. Over time means that let's say we're in a negotiation, one would assume that I'm going to whatever decision I make now is going to affect future decisions. If you think I'm a tough negotiator and an easy negotiator, I can signal those things. And so that's the time part of it. But the uncertainty part of it is the part that I really grab onto. And he talks about two sources of uncertainty. One is hidden information and one is luck. Mm. Now, you'll notice that those two things have a very strong influence on the game of poker. Your cards are face down and there's lots of luck can't control the cards. And in fact, von Neumann based game theory, that framework that he created in that book on a stripped down version of poker. And he was asked by a colleague of his named Jacob Bernowski, hey, I read this book. It's pretty interesting. How come you didn't base it on chess? 
Hmm. And von Neumann said, well, because chess isn't actually a game. Poker is a game. And what he meant by that is that chess is missing that really strong element of luck in the sense that nobody rolls the dice and it's a seven and you get an extra queen or something or right. you lose your bishop. It's an interesting and variant, though. So we may want to come back to that. Yeah. We should. That actually, that would, be, that would be very interesting if you added a luck element to chess. And then obviously the hidden information, I can see your whole position. So there, there isn't that hidden information. So this makes chess really different than poker or actually most decisions in life in the sense that if we play a game of chess and all anybody knows is that I lost. So mm. nobody's seen the game. They haven't actually seen the moves. They just know that I lost. They can derive from that that I must have made worse decisions than you did. But if all they know is that we played poker for that same amount of time, say an hour, and they know that I lost, but they don't know any of the decisions that I made right. during the game, you can't actually say that I made the worst decisions than you. Why? Because I could have lost due to luck, for example. So von Neumann really understood why poker is different and why poker creates this really great framework for thinking about human decision making. Now, when I went into poker, I was unaware of all of this. So I didn't know that like I, as a cognitive scientist, where I'm really thinking about learning and decision making, this attraction that I had to poker actually had deep roots. I had no idea. That was something, a happy thing that I found out later. Yeah. So what we're really trying to do is, is to think about, there's so much work and as you said, like poker is such a great laboratory for understanding this. There's so much work on where we go wrong in our decision-making. Confirmation bias, yeah. availability bias, status quo bias. The hindsight you know, one is great because I was thinking even 2020 is next year. Hindsight is 2020. So I thought that was a good one. That's so great. Yes. Hindsight bias resulting, which is very similar to hindsight bias. So Resulting is actually treating things like their chess. If the ball is intercepted, it must have been a bad play. When you talk about the Super Bowl, the Seahawks versus the Patriots and Pete Carroll's decision to throw the ball on second down on the goal line. Wonderful for those of us who are sports fans, game theorists, people who understand, you know, strategy and tactics under time pressure. That was a really powerful root story that you sort of weave throughout the narrative of the book. That's a great example of resulting, right? Like where we say... Because he was intercepted, Pete Carroll made the worst decision in Super Bowl history when your point would be more, that's looking at the outcome. That's not necessarily understanding the process that went into making that decision. And just because an unlikely outcome happened doesn't necessarily mean that you made the wrong decision heading in. And really your book is filled with stories like that. It's great for those of us who like to be entertaining at cocktail parties. I'm glad that it helps with that because I have a great fear of cocktail parties. Uh -huh. I need some small talk. So yeah. I'm glad that I could help anybody with that anxiety. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, I think that with the Pete Carroll decision, it's really easy to see resulting if you do this thought experiment. So we know that the ball got intercepted and we know what the headlines look like. As some of the, there was a headline that actually called him an idiot, which I think is astonishing. Like it's Pete Carroll, come on, right. really? So we know what that looks like when the ball's intercepted. Now, if we do the thought experiment, just take a moment and imagine that the Seahawks are on the one yard line and Pete Carroll does this super unusual thing and calls for the ball to be passed as opposed to handed off to Marshawn Lynch. So he calls for a pass and the ball's caught for the game winning touchdown. Right. Are there any headlines the next day calling him an idiot? No, he's a nope. genius. Yep. He's a genius, right? He's the greatest coach of, you know, he out Belichick, Belichick, so on yeah. and so forth. 
Yeah. So we know that there's a problem there because whenever there's a, a strong influence of luck and hidden information, what it means is that one time isn't enough to know whether that's a good decision or not. You'd have to see that decision played out multiple times before you could know anything from the outcome. And instead, what we need to understand are things like the simplest thing that you'd like to understand there is what percentage of the time is a ball going to get intercepted in that particular situation when a short yardage pass to that part of the end zone. And it's less than 2% of the time. And the minute that you understand that, the minute that you say, wait a minute, hold on, this is probabilistic, right? Like, right. I, I need to think about what the probabilities are here. And you ask yourself that particular question, you realize, hold on a second, that's so low. Right. That I now I should really think about whether whether that was a bad decision or not. But people don't really think that way. And I think that's really what we're trying to get at with the Alliance for Decision Education yeah. is what we realized is that, look, we created these programs. We improved outcomes. It didn't matter. We couldn't get it to move. If we want to reach millions of people, we have to create a movement. We have to be field catalyzer. We have to say there's all these adults who are reading Kahneman, right. who are reading Michael Maubison, who are reading Phil Tetlock, yep. Maria Konnikova, yep. the Heath brothers. There, there are so many amazing books in this space. There's Julia Galef, who has this amazing podcast on rationality. There's Shane Parrish and mm -hmm. Farnham Street and that site that he's running that's and adults are really thinking this is something, you know, there's a certain self-selecting group of adults who are saying, this is something that I really need that's going to improve my life. But it hasn't, it hasn't trickled down yep. uh, to K through 12. Right. And it's hardly trickled down to college, let's be honest. Yeah. We also talk a lot about data science, which is another field that's emerged in the last, say, five, 10 years. The competencies you need to be a great data scientist are not really built into K-12. No. And then higher ed is trying to play catch up a little bit, but looking for partners there. It's kind of like decision science, right? Or I don't know, depending on how you want to talk about this body of work, it's a lot of behavioral economics, cognitive psychology. It does feel like it's an intellectual movement that's happening. But what's funny is just the breakthrough doesn't seem to be as fast maybe as a lot of us would hope it is, particularly because we're in this golden age of self-improvement, like mindfulness and, yeah. you know, nutrition and making good health decisions and just making good decisions in general. It seems like such a fundamental, broadly applicable set of competencies that it's almost so fundamental that I think it's difficult for people who are in the more institutional parts of learning and education to even think about how do you start? I, I also think I also think the incentives are misaligned. By the way, not just data science. How about just coding? Why isn't a first grader starting to code? It's all this stuff that that businesses understand. These are important skills that we want to hire to. I mean, I don't think any business is hiring to the grade that you got in trigonometry or calculus, unless they're specifically structural engineers. Then I right. I would like you to know a lot of trigonometry then, but I assume I assume that you will have gotten that. Right. Along in your during your engineering degree, I'm hoping. Yeah. And by the way, there's a lot of businesses that have now created behavioral units. Yes. Like they really get it, but right. it's not getting down into K through 12. Yes. And I think a lot of the reason for that is because of what the incentives are in terms of reimbursements mm. and how the school is evaluated. These kinds of distortions 
that metrics can create. I think about this when I was watching my kids. Do you remember the Wii system? Like the Wii? Yeah. And they had one of the things that the Wii did was they had like a exercise thing. It was trying to get kids to be more fit. Yep. So you could turn on like the hula hoop thing or like the running thing. And it was yep. trying to get you to jog in place. And obviously this comes from the idea that kids who are moving more are healthier or adults that are moving more are healthier, but now they've created kind of a metric for how are you going to measure things that we know are sort of outcomes of healthiness that then, right? And I would watch my kids take the controller and just wave it. Yeah. And then they're scoring points for like jogging or something. So I feel like we've done that a lot in school is that we know like great performing schools, the kids have really good math scores or the kids have really good whatever. Mm -hmm. And so now we think that we can work backwards from that and say, if they have these really good math scores, then it's a good school, but it doesn't actually work backwards. You're looking at the outcome as opposed to the inputs. And now you're just measuring the outcome. So this is one of the things that we ran up against. We were talking to somebody who had under their umbrella, like almost 15,000 kids. Okay. And we were saying, we really want to talk to you about getting this into the classroom. And we were showing them like, look, here are these programs. They do really great things. And they said, no, like this. And they said they weren't happy about it. It wasn't like, this is our philosophy of life. They said, sadly, we're trying to get teachers and students to make fewer decisions, not more, because we need them to be doing the same thing. Every single classroom to be doing the same thing so that when they take that standardized test, yeah, we, we know that they're going to have taught this stuff. It's almost like training humans to be robots. Right, exactly. Yeah. So they said, we don't want teachers making a whole bunch of decisions. Like, we don't want them doing stuff like that's outside of the range of the things that we know that the time in the classroom needs to be taken yeah. or for them to be able to do to succeed at this test. We don't want the kids to be making more decisions. I mean, my gosh, talk about de-skilling. Right. Like we're just de-skilling the kids. Not to mention the implications to the future of work in a world where more and more automation and novel technology is going to be introduced into everyone's lives and new careers are going to emerge. You need to be ready to respond to new and surprising data quickly and with limited information. The way you, you talk about decision-making, it reminds me a bit of, of the Jeff Bezos recommendation. When you're 70% confident mm -hmm. about a decision, you should make it. Because if you wait, the, the amount of time you waste trying to get from 70 to 90 or 100%, it's more valuable to be quick across the board with that 70% confidence level because it's diminishing returns to try to get more certain and you wind yeah. up, and then like poker, is a great example of that because you really can't like, maybe you get extended time, but it's like a minute and change. Like it, you're under the gun. Literally a minute and 10 seconds. Oh my God. That's yeah. the extended time. That yeah. someone calls a clock, you get a minute and 10 seconds. That's exactly right. And obviously in order to be able to live that Jeff Bezos recommendation, yeah, which I think is such a good recommendation. It's if you have three options and you're 70% on one of the options, right. the other two options aren't competing. They're just not. And so, okay, if you go get more information, if you take more time, might you get to 74% right. on that option? Sure. But it doesn't change how it is relative to the other things that you could do. Right, right. So it might feel better to you to say, oh, I'm more certain, but you're 
relative to the other choices, you might as well just go and do it. And then you get to get the information from the world and adjust accordingly. But in order to do that, someone has to have taught you how to think probabilistically. Right. Someone has to have taught you that uncertainty is just the way, you know, that you have to make decisions under uncertainty that you can't be sure. Yeah. And they need to under have taught you about the idea of diminishing returns or setting goals or right. figuring out, thinking about how things might turn out or expected value or any of these things, which are concepts that you can teach to a first grader. Yeah. You know, you have to change the language, but, but you can teach this stuff to a first grader. And as you said, these kinds of decision skills are exactly the kind of skills that kids are going to need. Yeah. This kind of, how do you think flexibly, you know, how do you model the world and apply those models to different situations? Yes. A few books come to mind that are in this space. One is the wonderful book Range mm -hmm. by David Epstein. Yes. That's yeah. about generalists, right? Yeah. So it's saying when you have someone who's really a specialist in something that when you think about uh, who's thriving in the world right now, it's the generalists. And why are the generalists thriving in the world? Because they can look at any situation and bring biology to finance. Right. Think about it through that framework. And yep. they're incredibly nimble thinkers. And, and, you know, they don't have the rigidity and they can see out past the one thing that they're really good at. Phil Tetlock talks about foxes and yep. hedgehogs, right? Yes. So yes. that foxy kind of thinking where you're looking at things from all sorts of different angles is, is so valuable. And then there's two other books. One is Scott Page, The Model Thinker. And the other one that's just come out is called Super Thinking. Those are both great books that really just talk about the value of mental models. How, if you have a lot of different mental models at your disposal, you can then apply those to different situations and you can see what the similarities are. One of my favorite examples from super thinking actually is talking about how valuable it is to understand the concept of a two flank war. Mm. So you could think about that from the specialist standpoint of like actually militarily, you've got Poland in between Russia and Germany. You have to fight on both sides and why that's problematic. But once you understand that as a mental model and super thinking talks about this so beautifully, you could think about that in terms of Clinton mm. ha having to deal with Trump and Bernie Sanders at the same time. Interesting. Right. So she was fighting from her left flank and the right flank. And so she ended up really fighting a two flank war as well. And now you can see, oh, I can apply that to all sorts of different things sure. and all sorts of different situations. Yeah. And I think that these are the kinds of skills that are so incredibly important, which was why we're so passionate about wanting to really build a movement around this. So basically what we did was we said, okay, so this, the ship is really hard to move. It's really hard to get this kind of stuff into the school day. So what are we going to do? And our executive director, Joe Sweeney, who's amazing, looked around and started looking at where other big kind of seismic changes in education have, have occurred. And specifically, he was looking at like STEM and social emotional learning, SEL. Yep. And what he discovered in these cases is that there always seemed to be an organization that was in the background that most people probably hadn't heard of that was really catalyzing and building the field yep. through a variety of things, putting accelerant on organizations that were doing work that was really in the center of gravity of what the organization was interested in. So like we'll accelerate Decision Education Foundation and try to help move that along to look at whether it's academics or business or other nonprofits or in education who are kind of like hovering around the center of gravity and trying to pull them in into the center. Yep. 
so that they were get them to come into the mission and see how they can move and become part of what you're doing, to become really good connectors, to provide resources and support to those organizations, and really to sit in the background and figure out how do you weave this fabric together that's going to create this new thing. And in the case of SEL, it was an organization called Castle that was in the background that was really doing that. And if you think about it with SEL 30 years ago, right. nobody had even heard that. Right. What was that. Nowadays, everybody knows what it is. We talk about it so much on the show. I tend to say, I get socio-emotional, baby, because yep. I'm a Whitney Houston fan. Yeah, it's everywhere. Like it's right. Yeah. And it feels like it happened overnight, but it didn't. It took 25 years or something for that to occur. Yeah. And it was because there was an organization that was really, really trying to push that along. Yeah. And so we said, okay, so that's, all right, we've got this model now for how you create scale. Yeah. And we decided that that was the way that we were going to execute our mission, which is to teach decision skills to every kid in K through 12. That's our goal. With a, certainly with a focus in particular on kids who are underserved. Yep. That we knew that the mission didn't change. It was just the way that we were executing on the mission. Our strategy for yeah. executing on the mission changed. And we said, that's how we're going to model ourselves. We changed our name to the Alliance for Decision Education, which I think describes what we're trying to do a lot better. And that's more the catalyze of field. Try to get a movement going, yeah. uh, creating a convergence zone of people who are kind of loosely aligned, but at a conceptual level, there's spiritual alignment among right. broader range of folks. I think you're onto something. We like to talk about how things are zeitgeisty because it's fun to say zeitgeist. Yes, it but, is. Uh, that is a fun. That's an excellent word. I like convergence zone too, but I like zeitgeist as a fun word to say, but I'm going to take convergence zone. For yeah, me. yeah. You want to get people who think similarly enough that they'll benefit from bouncing off each other, but they don't necessarily have to have like monolithic alignment around one single, you know what I mean? It's more like yeah. there's a... And that's what creates a field too. Cause like right. we talk about that in the book as well, the importance of uh, divergent perspectives and people who can be critical that actually helps you make better decisions too. You're getting more inputs and you're avoiding groupthink. So the name of this field is, what's the best way to talk about it? So the field broadly is called decision education. And we can think about it as encompassing a wide range of decision and critical thinking skills all the way from how do you deal with decision fitness, the emotional component. So even like some mindful practices would go under this umbrella of making sure that you're calm enough to make a decision. How do you think about habits and habit formation? Identify your habits. Like how do you figure out what habits you want to develop and what habits you want to change to really thinking about how do you bring some form of decision analysis into your own life, building out decision trees, really understanding what the consequences of your decisions might be, really thinking about how are you mapping out the future? How are you becoming like a good forecaster? Thinking about how do you do internal audits of your own beliefs? How do you broaden your own knowledge base? Because obviously at the base of any decision that you make is going to be the, the beliefs that you have that inform it, which then obviously brings you into the whole world of biases and really understanding what are the ways in which we're really processing the world through the lens of our own cognitive bias. You know, obviously confirmation bias is, is one that you really want to think about, like bandwagon effect, Dunning-Kruger. Dunning-Kruger is a very interesting one where if you're a beginner, you say, I don't know anything. And then you learn a little bit and you know, I know everything. And then you become a real expert and you go back to, I don't know anything. Right. Exactly. So you really want to understand like, where are you on that curve and be really focused on what don't you know? Um, and then obviously 
teaching just probabilities, right? Like, how are you thinking probabilistically? How are you understanding what 70% means or what the likelihood of any event occurring is? And how do you marry that with what's to be gained or lost from a particular situation so that you can start thinking about expectation? Yeah. And what the consequences of your decisions might be. It's really, it's a very broad, it's a very broad field. So we need lots and lots of people with lots and lots of different perspectives to be coming in to to create this kind of movement and force to propel this idea about decision skills and critical thinking skills and decision education broadly to propel that forward. So our listeners may be part of that audience who, who are activating within their own educational context. A lot of folks who are either in ed tech or or educators, or they're just interested in lifelong learning, if they want to be activated against, you know, decision education and some of the stuff that we've been talking about on today's show, where should they go? What would you recommend they do? I would love if they'd go to our website and you can get there either through our old name, which is howidecide.org, or through our new name, if you search the Alliance for Decision Education. Okay. You'll find that there's a petition that you can sign that just says that you'll be part of the movement, but There's contact information on there. And if you feel like you can help or want to be connected to what we're doing, please get in touch. And a lot of what we do is people who say, I founded a charter school and I would love to bring this in, or I'm on the board of a charter school, I'm on a board of this school, or I have a relationship with this school district or whatever. Or if it's a business, if you're in business and this is something that's really important in your business and you recognize how important it would be for you to have employees that are coming in already skilled up. Yeah. In this, you can be part, we want you as part of that movement. If you're yeah. part of the higher ed and you realize how important this would be to push down into K through 12, we want you to be part of our movement. If you reach out to us and have any ideas about how to help us, or if you're an organization that you feel is in that convergence zone yeah. and you're looking to partner up and to have someone to help you make connections and to accelerate the efforts that you're making, please get in touch with us. And if you just want to be an advocate and tell people that we exist, look, that there's so much value in that. Yeah. And, and also people should buy and listen or read or acquire your book as well. A lot of the concepts that we're talking about, I had a much deeper understanding because I listened to your book. The book was so well researched that it almost felt like a course. Oh, actually. well, that's nice. Thank yeah, you. Yeah. I'm glad you took that as a compliment because I actually think you could almost expand that into a lot of the research that you referenced could almost become a syllabus of sorts. So for folks who are into lifelong learning and they want to get like a one-on-one exposure to what it means to be smart about decision-making, I would personally recommend Thinking in Bets. You're uh, a wonderful storyteller. It's a lot easier to understand really abstract concepts when you can tie them to things like the Super Bowl and the ins and outs of, of navigating a poker room during a tournament. Andy, thank you so much for the time you were able to spend with us today. Fantastic stuff there with Andy from back in 2019. Nice to see that it still stands the test of time. Hopefully you enjoyed what you were hearing. You can find out all the great things that Annie has going on at AnnieDuke.com. She's still involved with the Alliance for Decision Education. I've seen her get a podcast out there. She has a newsletter. She's doing all the things. Hopefully you enjoyed the conversation and we'll dig in further if you found it interesting. We'll be back with more new shows back next Monday. Check out our new Substack newsletter, our Future of Work series that drops each Friday, and then we'll continue to highlight and showcase our best of series throughout the remainder of the summer as we head into episode 500 of Trending in Education. Thanks to everyone for listening.